This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we ask a New Yorker contributor to choose a short story from our archive. This month, we'll hear The Gospel According to Mark by the great Argentinian writer Jorge Luis Borges. It also occurred to him that throughout history, humankind has told two stories. The story of a lost ship sailing the Mediterranean seas in quest of a beloved isle, and the story of a god who allows himself to be crucified on Golgotha. The Gospel According to Mark was chosen by novelist Paul Theroux, who has been contributing short fiction, journalism, and essays to The New Yorker since 1979. His most recent book is a collection of novellas set in India, titled The Elephanta Suite. Paul Theroux joins me now from the studios of WCAI in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Hi, Paul. Hi, Deborah. How are you doing? Good. So the, the New Yorker published many Borges stories and poems in the late 1960s and, and throughout the 70s. I'm wondering what made you choose this story in particular? I chose this story, I think, for the reason that I value stories in magazines, which was I knew about Borges. I'd read some of the stories in the 60s. But you never knew what was coming in The New Yorker. So there's a sense of discovery when you find a story in a magazine, not one in a book, not one that's been uh, billboarded or advertised, but just one that you leaf through and you say, oh, my goodness, there's a Borges story. At that time, Borges' name appeared at the end of the story, not the beginning. So there was always there's this question of who wrote this story. <laughs> this one particularly struck me. I think it's a very, very powerful story because it's about religion, about superstition, about belief, about faith, and about being a stranger. Now, I understand you met Borges at one point in person. Yes, I was taking the trip that I wrote about in uh, uh, the old Patagonian Express. I ended up in Buenos Aires. We had the same publisher, and I told him that uh, Borges was my hero. And he said, oh, well, he'd love to see you. He's blind, of course, and he needs to be read to. You can be his reader. So we, I went to his apartment. There was a white cat, I remember, sleeping on his lap. And um, I read to him. He loved Kipling and uh, Chesterton and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, The Wrong Box. And I'll tell you something else when I met him. I found him a very funny man. He was extremely humorous, very self-effacing. And there's something in this story, that there's wit in this story. It's kind of, it's perhaps a cruel wit or a... a cold wit, but it's there. It's definitely there. It's not, a, it's not just a solemn story, but it's a story about, you know, the walls closing in, the, the flood waters rising, and the man just with his back to the wall. We'll talk more about the story and about Borges later in the program. Here's Paul Theroux reading The Gospel According to Mark by Jorge Luis Borges. The incident took place on the Los Alamos ranch, south of the small town of Junin, in late March of 1928. Its protagonist was a medical student named Baltazar Espinosa. We might define him for the moment as a Buenos Aires youth, much like many others, with no traits worthier of note than the gift for public speaking that had won him more than one prize at the English school in Ramos Mejia, and an almost unlimited goodness. He didn't like to argue. He preferred that his interlocutor, rather than he himself, be right. And though he found the chance twists and turns of gambling interesting, he was a poor gambler, because he didn't like to win. He was intelligent and open to learning, but he was lazy. At 33, he had not yet completed the last requirements for his degree. The work he still owed, incidentally, was for his favorite class. His father, like all the gentlemen of his day, a free thinker, had instructed Espinosa in the doctrines of Herbert Spencer. But once... 
before he set off on a trip to Montevideo, his mother had asked him to say the Lord's Prayer every night and make the sign of the cross, and never in the years that followed did he break that promise. He did not lack courage. One morning, with more indifference than wrath, he had traded two or three blows with some of his classmates that were trying to force him to join a strike at the university. He abounded in debatable habits and opinions out of a spirit of acquiescence. His country mattered less to him than the danger that people in other countries might think the Argentines still wore feathers. He venerated France but had contempt for the French. He had little respect for Americans but took pride in the fact that there were skyscrapers in Buenos Aires. He thought that the gauchos of the plains were better horsemen than the gauchos of the mountains. When his cousin Daniel invited him to spend the summer at Los Alamos, he immediately accepted, not because he liked the country, but out of a natural desire to please, and because he could find no good reason for saying no. The main house at the ranch was large and a bit run down. The quarters for the foreman, a man named Gutre, stood nearby. There were three members of the Gutre family, the father, the son who was singularly rough and unpolished, and a girl of uncertain paternity. They were tall, strong and bony, with reddish hair and Indian features. They rarely spoke. The foreman's wife had died years before. In the country, Espinosa came to learn things that he hadn't known, had never even suspected. For example, that when you're approaching a house, there's no reason to gallop, and that nobody goes out on a horse unless there's a job to be done. As the summer wore on, he learned to distinguish birds by their call. Within a few days, Daniel had to go to Buenos Aires to close a deal on some livestock. At the most, he said, the trip would take a week. Espinosa, who was already a little tired of his cousin's bonne fortune and his indefatigable interest in the vagaries of men's tailoring, stayed behind on the ranch with his textbooks. The heat was oppressive, and not even nightfall brought relief. Then one morning, toward dawn, he was awakened by thunder. Wind lashed the casuarina trees. Espinosa heard the first drops of rain and gave thanks to God. Suddenly the wind blew cold. That afternoon, the salado overflowed. The next morning, as he stood on the porch looking out over the flooded plains, Baltazar Espinosa realized that the metaphor equating the pampas with the sea was not, at least that morning, an altogether false one though Hudson had noted that the sea seems the grander of the two because we view it not from horseback or our own height, but from the deck of a ship. The rain did not let up. The Gutres, helped or hindered by the city dweller, saved a good part of the livestock, though many animals were drowned. There were four roads leading to the ranch. All were underwater. On the third day, when a leaking roof threatened the foreman's house, Espinosa gave the Gutres a room at the back of the main house, alongside the tool shed. The move brought Espinosa and the Gutres closer, and they began to eat together in the large dining room. Conversation was not easy. The Gutres, who knew so much about things in the country, did not know how to explain them. One night, Espinosa asked them if people still remembered anything about the Indian raids back when the military command for the frontier had been in Hunin. They told him they did, but they would have given the same answer if he had asked them about the day Charles I had been beheaded. Espinosa recalled that his father used to say that all the cases of longevity that occur in the country are the result of either poor memory or a vague notion of dates. 
Gauchos quite often know neither the year they were born in nor the name of the man that fathered them. In the entire house, the only reading material to be found were several copies of a farming magazine, a manual of veterinary medicine, a deluxe edition of the romantic verse drama Tabaré, a copy of The History of the Shorthorn in Argentina, several erotic and detective stories, and a recent novel that Espinosa had not read, Don Segundo Sombra by Ricardo Guiraldes. In order to put some life into the inevitable after-dinner attempt at conversation, Espinosa read a couple of chapters of the novel to the Gutres, who did not know how to read or write. Unfortunately, the foreman had been a cattle drover himself and could not be interested in the adventures of another such a one. It was easy work, he said. They always carried along a pack mule with everything they might need. If he had not been a cattle drover, he announced, he'd never have seen Lake Gomez or the Bragado River or even the Nunez Ranch in Chacabuco. In the kitchen, there was a guitar. Before the incident I am narrating, the laborers would sit in a circle and someone would pick up the guitar and strum it, though never managing actually to play it. That was called giving it a strum. Espinosa, who was letting his beard grow out, would stop before the mirror to look at his changed face. He smiled to think that he'd soon be boring the fellows in Buenos Aires with his stories about the Salado overrunning its banks. Curiously, he missed the places in the city he never went and would never go. A street corner on Cabrera where a mailbox stood. Two cement lions on a porch on Calle Jujuy, a few blocks from the Plaza del Once. A tile-floored corner grocery store and bar whose location he couldn't quite remember. As for his father and his brothers, by now Daniel would have told them that he had been isolated. The word was etymologically precise by the floodwaters. Exploring the house still cut off by the high water, he came upon a Bible printed in English. On its last pages, the Guthries, for that was their real name, had kept their family history. They had come originally from Inverness and had arrived in the New World, doubtlessly as peasant laborers, in the early 19th century. They had intermarried with Indians. The chronicle came to an end in the 1870s. They no longer knew how to write. Within a few generations, they had forgotten their English. By the time Espinosa met them, even Spanish gave them some difficulty. They had no faith, though in their veins, alongside the superstitions of the pampas, there still ran a dim current of the Calvinists' harsh fanaticism. Espinosa mentioned his find to them, but they hardly seemed to hear him. He leafed through the book, and his fingers opened it to the first verses of the Gospel according to St. Mark. To try his hand at translating, and perhaps to see if they might understand a little of it, he decided that that would be the text he read the Gutres after dinner. He was surprised that they listened first attentively, and then with mute fascination. The presence of gold letters on the binding may have given it increased authority. It's in their blood, he thought. It also occurred to him that throughout history, humankind has told two stories. The story of a lost ship sailing the Mediterranean seas in quest of a beloved isle, and the story of a god who allows himself to be crucified on Golgotha. He recalled his elocution classes in Ramos Mejia, and he rose to his feet to preach the parables. In the following days, the Gutres would wolf down the spitted beef and canned sardines in order to arrive sooner at the gospel. The girl had a little lamb. 
It was her pet, and she prettied it with a sky-blue ribbon. One day it cut itself on a piece of barbed wire. To stanch the blood, the Gutres were about to put spider webs on the wound, but Espinosa treated it with pills. The gratitude awakened by that cure amazed him. At first he had not trusted the Gutres, and had hidden away in one of his books the 240 pesos he'd brought. Now, with Daniel gone, he had taken the master's place and begun to give timid orders, which were immediately followed. The Gutres would trail him through the rooms and along the hallway, as though they were lost. As he read, he noticed that they would sweep away the crumbs he had left on the table. One afternoon, he surprised them as they were discussing him in brief, respectful words. When he came to the end of the Gospel according to St. Mark, he started to read another of the three remaining Gospels. But the father asked him to reread the one he'd just finished so that they could understand it better. Espinosa felt they were like children who prefer repetition to variety or novelty. One night, he dreamed of the flood, which is not surprising, and was awakened by the hammering of the building of the ark, but he told himself it was thunder. And in fact, the rain, which had let up for a while, had begun again. It was very cold. The Gutres told him that the rain had broken through the roof of the tool shed. When they got the beams repaired, they said, they'd show him where. He was no longer a stranger, a foreigner, and they all treated him with respect. He was almost spoiled. None of them liked coffee, but there was always a little cup for him, with spoonfuls of sugar stirred in. That second storm took place on a Tuesday. Thursday night, there was a soft knock on his door. Because of his doubts about the Gutres, he always locked it. He got up and opened the door. It was the girl. In the darkness, he couldn't see her, but he could tell by her footsteps that she was barefoot, and afterward, in the bed, that she was naked. That, in fact, she had come from the back of the house that way. She did not embrace him or speak a word. She lay down beside him, and she was shivering. It was the first time she had lain with a man. When she left, she did not kiss him. Espinosa realized that he didn't even know her name. Impelled by some sentiment he did not attempt to understand, he swore that when he returned to Buenos Aires, he'd tell no one of the incident. The next day began like all the others except that the father spoke to Espinosa to ask whether Christ had allowed himself to be killed in order to save all mankind. Espinosa, who was a free thinker like his father, but felt obliged to defend what he had read them, paused. Yes, he finally replied, to save all mankind from hell. What is hell? Gutre then asked him. A place underground where souls will burn in fire forever. And those that drove the nails will also be saved? Yes, replied Espinosa, whose theology was a bit shaky. He had worried that the foreman wanted to have a word with him about what had happened last night with his daughter. After lunch, they asked him to read the last chapters again. Espinosa had a long siesta that afternoon, although it was a light sleep, interrupted by persistent hammering and vague premonitions. Toward evening he got up and went out into the hall. The water's going down, he said, as though thinking out loud. It won't be long now. Not long now, repeated Gutre like an echo. The three of them had followed him. 
Kneeling on the floor, they asked his blessing. Then they cursed him, spit on him, and drove him to the back of the house. The girl was weeping. Espinosa realized what awaited him on the other side of the door. When they opened it, he saw the sky. A bird screamed. It's a goldfinch, Espinosa thought. There was no roof on the shed. They had torn down the roof beams to build the cross. That was Paul Theroux reading The Gospel According to Mark by Jorge Luis Borges, translated by Andrew Hurley as part of the volume Collected Fictions, which was published by Penguin in 1998. The translation that actually ran in the magazine back in 1971 was done by Norman Thomas Di Giovanni in consultation with Borges himself. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com actionplan Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Now, I know, Paul, I know you have some thoughts on the difference between those two translations. Can you tell us what they are? The tone is slightly different. Words are slightly different. I mean, there's one glaring difference. Uh, it, it mentions that the Gutres uh, get interested in the crumbs on the table. And in the Hurley translations, they say um, they would sweep away the crumbs he'd left on the table. In Borges and the Dio Giovanni translation, they say they were stealing the crumbs he'd left on the table <laughs> and spiriting them away. Which makes more sense. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, for one thing, Borges spoke English very well. He also spoke German, French, Spanish, and, and he spoke Anglo-Saxon. But he would have approved that, you know, uh, stealing the crumbs. So mm-hmm. it's, it's very useful to compare the translations, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you can become a real uh, Borges uh, aficionado and uh, get into these things. Yeah, it's probably more useful just to know the Spanish. <laughs> yeah. yeah, although Borges said, he said Spanish is a hopeless language. It takes 15 words to say one thing. <laughs> In some ways, the, the Gospel According to Mark feels like a horror story. You can almost imagine it as a, as a Stephen King story with, a, obviously, a different style. 
That's true. It does have a horror element. But also, after you've read it and you see that it's about a man who goes to a place, reads the Gospel of St. Mark, and gets crucified by the people that he's, he's uh, converted. You see, it's full of clues. It's full of, you know, the biblical mm-hmm. flood, the simple people. They want to be saved. He, he grows a beard. This he's, is why you, you see it's, it could be a movie. He's, he's 33. 33 yeah. He's 33 years old, yeah. yeah. But you don't notice it. The story is so deftly written. Do you think Borges was trying to say something about the danger of religion or, or more about the danger of not choosing sides? And Espinosa is sort of waffling between his father and his mother's positions. That's a good point. You know, that, that is good. It's between his mother and father. Borges is commenting, too, I think, on the gauchos, on the simplicity of it and on, the, on their remoteness. It's also a story about the power of the written word and, and of reading. So. Yes, it is. The people can't read. And it's interesting how uh, Espinosa, who has no real religion, he's, he's been um, mumbling uh, prayers that his mother told him, but he's just reading the story. But, oh, the other, the other uh, detail in the story is his elocution lesson. He's, he's very well-spoken. He's, <laughs> he's a medical student, too. And I think I may be wrong, but there's a suggestion that Jesus had um, uh, uh, wasn't exactly a magician, but was a kind of Hakim. Was he was a, a healer. Uh, yeah. A healer, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What's What's interesting to me also in this story is is the way that he he just undermines the whole pastoral tradition. You know, the 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 pompous here. It's not a region of simplicity or beauty. It's it's something quite a bit more sinister for him. Yes, cruel, difficult, ravaged by nature, and also this this lovely detail of he he reads the, the or starts to read them a story about gauchos and the people are bored stiff. <laughs> <laughs> but to create this story. In so few pages, in so few words, such a such a drama is something that um, is, I think, proof of Borges' greatness. It's, it's clear just about every South American writer has been influenced by, by Borges in some way. Uh, not only a South American writer, but I mean, his influence is very, very far-reaching. The trouble is, he's a bad influence. I mean, he's, he's good <laughs> in that he, he... But no one can be... Uh, uh, Borges. No one can write the Borges story. In in terms of magic and scholarship, I think he's inimitable. I think that what what Borges teaches is patience. You know the importance of really knowing what you're talking about, and then and this sense of of compression that you don't you don't really need to write a novel if the story works in mm-hmm. four or five pages. But I, uh, the influence is, is uh, absolutely, it's, it's, everyone has it. And everyone who grew up, I think if you, you, you came of age in the 60s or 70s reading, it was inevitable that you would come across Borges. You know, Dickens writing in all the year round, reading a magazine, and suddenly you're reading, for the Victorian reader, they're reading Charles Dickens in a magazine. <laughs> well, this is my feeling, reading, reading Borges in The New Yorker was great thrill. You know, Borges delivered to your mailbox, really wonderful. <laughs> Paul, thank you so much. Thank you, Deborah. Paul Theroux is the author of The Great Railway Bazaar and The Mosquito Coast, among many other fiction and nonfiction books. A collection of his novellas has just been published under the title The Elephanta Suite. You can also read his most recent story, Mr. Bones, on our website, newyorker.com. To subscribe to this and other free New Yorker podcasts, please visit the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. You've been listening to the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from the New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thank you for listening.